In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. About a year ago, I had some friends visiting and staying at the rectory, and before they took off for town, I I made a list of various things I thought they had to see. Um, Among them were a few churches, you might imagine. They came back that night, we met over dinner, and I said, well, what did you see? And they went down their list of seeing this and that and had gotten tickets to a great show and they had pretty much done the whole list. And then one of my friends said, you know, it's remarkable how close the Episcopal Cathedral is to the Roman Catholic Cathedral. And I said, well, um, what, what do you mean? And they said, well, it's almost across the street. It's just diagonal by a few blocks. I understood what they meant after a minute or two. They had been to St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cathedral at, what, 51st and 5th, maybe? And then they went to St. Thomas Church, Episcopal, at 53rd and 5th, and mistook that for the Episcopal Cathedral of New York. One could be forgiven for mistaking St. Thomas Church as a cathedral. It, It feels like a cathedral. It acts a lot like a cathedral. Um, In fact, if you want to visit England and don't have money for the plane fare, just use a subway token and go to St. Thomas. It's uh, in some ways slightly more British than the Queen. Um, The the current rector is British. They have a choir of men and boys who sing choral evensong. It's a glorious, glorious place and a, a transformational experience if you haven't been to evensong there. St. Thomas is this massive building in French high Gothic. Um, When you go in, the first thing your eye sees, I think for most people, is the reredos, the, the giant wall behind the high altar. It's all stone, intricately carved. Um, I'm sure someone has counted the number of saints and angels and martyrs and apostles. Um, It would be a great church to grow up in with a boring preacher because you'd have plenty to do to count the apostles and things. Here you can just enjoy the stained glass when I'm boring. Um, But St. Thomas is a magical place with all of these saints and angels sort of looking out at you. And then there at the very bottom... Just over the altar is a carving of the man himself, St. Thomas. St. Thomas with Jesus. As one architectural explanation puts it, St. Thomas is kneeling before Christ, his doubt gone. In some ways, I think that whole monumental building means to put an exclamation point on that phrase, his doubt gone. Um, The point being, Thomas has found faith. He's found Jesus. Uh, He's with God, and so the church is triumphant and powerful and mighty and grand. But is that the biblical Thomas? It's not my biblical Thomas. Mine is just the opposite. What makes St. Thomas so great for me is, is not his massive power and ability to be right there with Christ, but just the opposite. 
What makes Thomas interesting? What makes Thomas compelling? What makes Thomas a role model for me and many is that Thomas was able to be honest about his doubt, even in the face of Christ. But he didn't let his doubt make him turn from God. Rather, his doubt became a part of his faith and moved him closer with questions. We hear about Thomas in a number of places in the Bible. Um, The word Thomas comes from an Aramaic word, probably meaning twin. And so it seems that Thomas had a twin. Um, Some suppose that he was the twin brother of Matthew. Earlier in St. John's Gospel, when they hear the news that their friend Lazarus has died, it's Thomas who wants to go and be with Jesus. Sensing danger and not knowing what's ahead, Thomas nonetheless has the faith to say, let us go with the Lord so that we may die with him. When Jesus gives his farewell discourse to the disciples, Jesus talks about going down a road into a place where the disciples won't be able to follow. But Jesus says, it's a place you nevertheless will know. Thomas speaks up, a little like St. Peter does so often. Thomas speaks up with his doubts. Lord, we don't know where you're going. And yet Jesus affirms, no, you do know. You do know. And then Jesus gives us the essence of who Jesus is. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. As if to say to Thomas, I'm all you need. Know me. Reach for me. Look for me. That's enough. Thomas is with the disciples when they're fishing and Jesus appears to them. This occurs late in the Gospel of John in chapter 21. It's a part of the Gospel that that many biblical scholars think was added on to the original, a little bit like we discussed last week with the Gospel of Mark. And so the chronology of those events in the the last part of John's gospel is unclear. We don't know whether the the fishing trip happened before or after the Easter fish fry. It's a little bit confused, but each each, uh, vignette is given to us for something to notice, for something to mull over. Thomas sometimes seems more theologically alert than the other disciples, He's the one who asks the hard question, the penetrating question, um, pushing Jesus to explain himself. The early church understood Thomas as the author of another gospel. You can find those writings in the so-called Gnostic gospels, an, an unfortunate term. <laughs> but it's a set of texts which were not included in the early church canons. There's a collection of sayings grouped together called the Acts of the Apostle Thomas. And there's even an apocalypse of Thomas, a vision that came to Thomas and then was written down. Tradition has it that Thomas sailed all the way to India and spread the gospel there. And sure enough, if you go to South India, the Martoma Church, the Syrian Orthodox Church, uh, reveres St. Thomas, and a lot of people have Thomas as their last name. After a long life of preaching and working with the poor, tradition says that Thomas was in fact martyred in India, but Thomas's body then was taken over to Edessa, 
where his relics have ever since been an important inspiration for the the Syrian church. And so a father of Indian and Syrian Christianity, Thomas continues to inspire. A more recent poet has put it this way, talking about Thomas. He writes, these things did Thomas hold for real, the warmth of blood, the chill of steel, the grain of wood, the heft of stone, the last frail twitch of blood and bone, his brittle certainties denied that one could live when one had died until his fingers read like braille the markings of the spear and nail. May we, O God, by grace believe and in believing still receive the Christ who held his raw palms out and beckoned Thomas from his doubt. It wasn't enough for Thomas to simply hear that Jesus had been raised. It wasn't enough for him to hear it from Mary Magdalene. It wasn't enough for him to hear it from the two who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Thomas's faith came in a different way. It came more stubbornly. It came slower. It had to take into consideration all the information at hand. Thomas's faith was different from others. It appeared to others like doubt, like indecision like a lack of faith. And yet for Thomas, I think it simply was his faith. It was his way of faith. It was his way of being willing to struggle, to look for truth deeply, to to weigh the evidence, and only then move forward. This morning we were looking at some of the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins and we we looked at that idea of inscape of each thing and being having some, some essence of God that then connects us one with another. That's what Thomas has in his doubting. His faith isn't like everyone else's and it doesn't have to be because he's Thomas. He's his own person. Jesus had already appeared to the other disciples. Jesus had breathed on them the very breath of the Spirit of God. And so the others are are filled with the Spirit, full of faith. They share in the resurrection. They're filled with new life. They're ready to tell the world. But Thomas hadn't been there. Thomas instead comes late to the party and says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. And so then on the eighth day, the eighth day being symbolic of a whole new thing, the new day of creation, when everything is brand new in a whole new way, This day beyond seven ordinary days of creation, the eighth day filled with possibilities and unimagined miracles, Jesus appears again. Peace be with you, Jesus says. And then Jesus offers himself the resurrected body that yet still bears the wounds, though they are transformed wounds. Notice the gospel leaves room for our imagination. It doesn't say whether Thomas really touched or not. Artists have been uncomfortable with that ambiguity. Um, If you look at Caravaggio's painting, Thomas's his finger is in the wound of Jesus, making it clear that this was flesh and blood resurrected. And so Thomas feels 
and then knows. Rembrandt's version is much darker. There's a distance. We're left to wonder, does Thomas then have faith, or does he still hold back? And what about us? If Jesus appeared before us, would we believe any more or any differently or any deeper? Would, would we touch the wounds if given the opportunity? Uh, would we believe even the wounds? St. Thomas stands not only for the father of Indian and Syrian Christianity, but I think he stands in as the patron saint for all of those whose faith does not come easily. For all of us whose faith includes a measure of doubt, of questioning, of, of suspicion, maybe even a tad of cynicism, Thomas reminds us it's okay to doubt. It's okay to wonder. It's okay to be a little suspicious, especially since, for one, if not for many, suspicion eventually led to sainthood. Especially at this time of year, this Easter tide, when we bask in the stories and the alleluias and the music and the flowers and so much beauty. May we also be honest with the beauty of doubt when and where it occurs. May it lead us closer to the heart of Christ. May it lead us ever more faithful into the heart of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.